0: 13. Hear this, the word of the Lord. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge And if I have all faith so as as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the 19th century, there was a, a polar expedition of the North Pole, of the USS Jeannette was captained by George DeLong. And this expedition relied upon this map of Dr. August Henrik Peterman. There'll be a test afterwards to see if we remember these names. Um, but Peterman's map was not created by experience. He created this map based on a theory that he had, a theory of the polar, um, the North Pole. And his theory was this. His theory was that uh, there was... Warm water coming from the Pacific, that actually created uh, a nice, and opened up in the North Pole to a nice Arctic sea. His theory was that once you got through this kind of outer layer of ice, you would open up to this nice vast sea that you could go across the North Pole on. Um, And so, this journey left from San Francisco, they traveled north up to the coast, and, and little by little, they noticed that more and more ice was surrounding the ship, and they started a little bit concerned that maybe their map... Maybe their vision of what was happening was actually off. And then day after day, they started getting surrounded by more and more ice and finally decided, listen, this map is wrong. And they had to abandon ship and then the ship sank. And we obviously, we know now that, you know, the North Pole is what? It's covered with with ice. (laughs) And they found that out. But they had a faulty map. They had a faulty vision. And their vision, their map, is what was leading them. Their, Their vision, their map, was what was guiding them. And when we think about what the good life is and what we think about our own vision for what the good life is, the good life for us is like a map. Like a map, it either leads us to open waters in the North Pole or it leads us to being surrounded by ice and having to abandon ship. And this is how we live life. We have visions of what we think is good. We have visions and maps for our life. And these these visions and these maps lead us. They lead our daily decisions. They guide us. And Paul is speaking to a people in the Corinthian church who have been driven by a faulty map. He's speaking to a people that have a faulty vision of what is good. And the vision is this. The, The Corinthian church believed That they needed to perform to belong. And in their thirst, in their thirst to perform, they thought they needed to acquire more and more gifts to perform better and better. They had become so consumed with acquiring these gifts that it was all they could do and all they could think about. And Paul is showing them as he's showing us. That, that in the good life, the good life isn't about acquiring gifts so much as it's about acquiring virtue. And in this way, their gifts had outpaced their virtue, and he begins telling them, listen, there's a better way, there's a more excellent way. And we do the same thing. We have the same struggle. We think that we have to perform to be noticed. We think that we have to perform to be loved. We're tempted to think that the good life The life that's best for us is actually measured by productivity. And then we wake up in the morning more worried about what we're going to do today rather than who we are becoming. And we're tempted to think that the most important duty of our day is to to make sure our to-do list gets completed. I know this is my temptation. I have this to-do list app that everything's, you know, nice and yellow, except for if it goes past 5 o'clock on that day, then it turns this angry red. (laughs) And I think I have to get all those things checked off. And if I don't, it makes me cranky. It makes me angry. And we find that the antidote to this this faulty vision of the good life here in this passage, because living this way, always thinking that we need to perform. And thinking that our value is found in our accomplishments and gift scenes and service is really, it's exhausting, isn't it? It's like trying to chase the wind. And we can never really keep it up. And Paul is teaching us God's vision for the good life. He shows us that God's vision for the good life is one that's ordered by love and one that's lived out in community. That God's vision for the good life is one that's ordered by love and lived out in community because God is more concerned about who you're becoming than what you're accomplishing. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is what it means to be ordered by love then. The root of the good life is one that's ordered by love. To explain this, Paul actually gives us uh, examples of the opposite in this passage. He gives us three examples of what a faulty vision of a life that's not ordered by love looks like. And then he shows us a true vision for what the good life looks like. But first, these faulty visions. The first one is that of a noisy gong. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I can speak in tongues to be understood by all. And yet apart from love and being ordered by love, I'm a noisy gong. The Corinthian church had this problem. They thought that, that the gift of tongues was actually the greatest gift that they could possibly have. And so they sought after it with the lust. But apart from love, it's just a noisy gong. I was watching the third Harry Potter movie with my children a couple weeks ago, and there's this scene where Harry's sitting in this dormitory, and they're eating these candies, and they put one key piece of candy in their mouth, and they open their mouth, and it's the sound of an elephant comes out. Another guy puts a different piece of candy in their mouth, and the sound of a lion comes out. And another one, it's the sound of a monkey. And for us, it's like putting a, a noisy gong candy in our mouth, and you open it up, and it's just like And this gift of tongues, Right, which is meant to include those that, that can't understand the language that's being spoken. This gift of tongues that's meant to, to, to equip and 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 shape the church and invite people in, instead repels people. And it begins to actually push people away when it's not accompanied and rooted in love. Because our words are meant to create, and our words are meant to build up, much like God through his word in the beginning created all things. And we, when we try to attain these gifts for their own sake, when we separate ourselves from the gift giver, and then, then this gift that was meant to bring light and life and encourage and draw people in actually pushes people away. Because we become ruled more by our lusts for more than being ordered by love. The second example he gives is this a set of knowledge and faith It says in verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. You can can know every mystery that there is, but apart from love, you are nothing. Isn't that interesting? I mean, when we think about knowledge, when we think about understanding mysteries, we don't like mystery, do we? (laughs) We want to know everything, and we think that knowledge is actually power. We're taught that. We even teach our children that. Knowledge is power. And this isn't a a new phenomenon to try to know everything or to think that we need to know anything. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote this uh, this in in a letter about the founding of a state university. He said this. He said, Knowledge is power. Knowledge is safety. And knowledge is happiness. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is safety. Knowledge is happiness. I mean, who doesn't want those things? Who doesn't want... Uh, power and safety and happiness. And we, th- we often think to ourselves, listen, if I just knew these mysteries, if I just knew what was going on here, you know, I could probably sleep a little bit better at night. My anxieties would go away if I just knew. And yet, isn't this pursuit of knowledge, this lust of knowledge, this being ruled by, isn't this what actually led Adam and Eve into their great rebellion in the garden? Their thirst for knowledge that wasn't meant to be theirs. Their lust for more. And in doing so, they became nothing. God is showing us that knowledge, the pursuit of it, the lust for it is a poor God. That you can know everything and yet have nothing. Because knowledge is not the good life. And the last example here is, you know, is... is, is uh, being able to give up everything that you have, even to the point of death. It's one of the greatest acts that you could possibly perform. It's verse 3. It says, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I mean, this is supposed to be the most admirable act that you could do would be to die for somebody. We, we, we read in Scripture that no greater love is there than this, right? That you would lay down your life for another And yet even this, if it's done merely out of duty and obligation, gains you nothing. Because we're meant to be ordered and regulated by love. We're meant to be ordered and regulated by who we are more than what we're doing. Paul is showing us that the good life is not about acquiring gifts. The good life, God's good life, is about acquiring virtue. The greatest of these is love. Because God is more concerned about who you are becoming than what you are accomplishing. So how do we do this? How do we we acquire this great virtue? How do we acquire love? What does this vision of love look like? You know, Scripture tells us that that we acquire love first and foremost by receiving the gift of love that has been given to us. And in in this language here, In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, but have not love, but have not love. To have something is to have been given something, to receive something. And we see this also in in Colossians 2, 6. It tells us that that just as we have received Christ, so live in him. And so we have this this true vision of, of the good life when we live out of that which we've received so to gain a corrected vision of love, to grow in this virtue of love, we need to be firmly rooted in the love that we received from Christ. For us to acquire love is to be rooted in this good news, in the gospel. And the gospel story is this, that before the foundation of the world, God existed. Before anything that was created that we see, God existed. in perfect love and harmony with himself And out of the overflowing love of God, creation happened. The triune God created all things out of love, and he called them good. And yet, in humanity's thirst for more, and humanity's lack of contentment with what God had given them, a a competing vision was created and formed. A vision that is never satisfied, a vision that we never have enough. Yet even as Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, God promised that one day one would come and redeem them. And even as his people were sent out of the garden, God continued to love and pursue his people, calling them to live according to his ways, according to his rules. And even when they betrayed his law, even when they turned away, God still pursued and loved his people. Until the point where he finally sends a child born to the Virgin Mary into this world, Jesus. And living this life of love, he modeled for us love as he died for us, this gruesome death. As he didn't stay dead, but he rose again, conquering death. So that we, receiving his love and his goodness, would live with him forever. And we receive that gift of love as we have fellowship with Christ, as we follow him, as we're his disciples. And this orients us to live the good life as we follow Jesus. This is the love that we're supposed to acquire. For us to acquire this love is to be firmly rooted in this good news of the gospel, that Jesus is who he said he was. And because of this, we don't need to keep on chasing these competing visions for the good life. These competing visions that tell us that we have to perform belong. These competing visions that sell us that God is more concerned about our accomplishments than who we are becoming. Because listen to what Paul says here at the very beginning. He says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. We already have the excellent way. We already have something better. The greatest thing, Paul says, the best vision of the good life is love. This love that we have in the person and the work of Christ. We already have the good life in Christ right now. The more excellent way is ours. There is this saying that when you've caught the bus, stop running. And for us, Jesus is the bus. We don't have to keep chasing competing visions because we have caught the bus. We have caught Jesus. He is love. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus really is the good life? That the life he has for you is the good life? Paul is reminding the people that when you have Jesus, you have found the fountain of life. That that through his love, all things were created. and, And even now, Jesus sustains all things. His love that laid down his life so that every sin has been wiped away. So that all that is broken in creation will be made new. This love is ours. Because he's given it to us. It's full stop. There's there's no buts. You know, the amazing truth is even when we struggle, even when we're we're chasing after competing visions, the beauty is that Jesus couldn't love us more in that moment. That's the beauty of the gospel. He's still chasing us, he's still wooing us, hounding us, reminding us that his love is the greatest. It's the most excellent gift. That his love really is enough. His love is the good life. Because God is more concerned about who you're becoming than what you're accomplishing. This is a hard thing for us to believe, though, isn't it? So how do we, how do we grow in this? How do we grow in this love, right? If the good life is one that's ordered by love, and this love is the love of Christ and this virtue of love has been given to us, how do we actually grow in this love? How do we firmly root ourselves in this proper vision to fight against those competing visions that that battle for us every day? That when you walk out this door, that competing vision's gonna pop into your mind. How do we do this? In the context here, I think that we learn that this primarily happens actually in community. This primarily happens in community. You know, this text comes to us in a place that's talking about the communal life of the church, these gifts that are given for the corporate flourishing of the body of Christ. And this comes to us in the middle of this this communal context. And if you think about it, this makes sense on a variety of levels. For one, um, it's in community that we actually find out that we're actually being changed and formed, isn't it? It's in community that you can actually tell whether or not you're being changed for instance, apart from community, if, uh, you often think that you're a lot better than you actually are. An example from my life is before I got married, I thought I was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. See, so did you. <laughs> and then you get married, and then you realize, oh, I'm really selfish. And then you start to have children, and you're like, oh, no, I'm really selfish. And, and being around people, and it's not just in marriage and having children, but just being around people helps, helps us to see what's really there. And we need that. And we need that. We're meant to be formed in community. And this is, this is the second point. You know, first and foremost, the good life is, is ordered by love, and it's lived out in community. Lived out in community. I think we see this in a couple ways. The first is the one I've mentioned, is that community, for us, acts as a mirror. Community acts as a mirror. Uh, Because we can't always see what's going on and how our actions are affecting those around us. It's in community that we're exposed. And the very um, reason that Paul is actually able to to say what he says to the Corinthian church is because he actually knows them. He knows them. He knows what's going on. And so he's able to say what he says. He's trying to reorient their loves. And he can do this because he's in community with them. You know, even just this week, I was having a conversation with a friend about a theological matter. And it was a conversation I thought was a good conversation. We're kind of going back and forth, explaining our different opinions about something. And the conversation was over. And then I ran into him a little later that day, and he said, Craig, can I tell you something? He said, when when we were having that conversation, I didn't feel loved by you. I was like, oh. He said, why not? He said, you know, I felt like I turned into your opponent. And And I wasn't your friend anymore. I wasn't your brother, but I was your opponent. I was like, oh. And I was thinking about this passage that I'm studying for this sermon. I was like... So I kind of became like a noisy gong to you then, didn't I? I He's like, yeah, you really did. And in that, he actually shut me off, right? And so he wasn't able to, even if my arguments were awesome, even if they were articulated in the most beautiful and perfect and profound way, which they weren't, (laughs) but even if they were, because of my attitude and my posture towards my brother, he wouldn't have hurt him. This thing that was meant to draw us together actually pushed us apart because I lacked love. But because I'm in community, and because he was willing to tell me, I was able to see that. I was able to apologize and repent. We were able to have a good conversation about that. So it's in the context of community that we actually see who we actually are. We actually can see whether or not we're loving or not. The other thing we find is that in community, our gifts are actually meant for the community. And to be ordered by love in this way is to think first of others. See, these gifts are not given uh, to us for our own sake. (laughs) We're not not given gifts to go sit in a closet and and, and do these by ourselves. We're given these gifts to share with each other for the sake of each other, to build one another up. I mean, think about each three of these gifts that Paul talks about here. First, the gift of tongues. I mean, it's meant to include people from other cultures and other language. So that even though uh, the language spoken here might have been Greek, those that were speaking other languages could actually understand. It'd be for us, like if the Spanish church that meets in our church building every afternoon, if they were to show up Sunday morning, and if we did everything in English, they would understand it in their native tongue. I mean, that's a pretty profound gift for the early church to have had, right? And what does that do that actually welcomes people in? When we use our gifts out of love, it actually welcomes and draws people in because we're doing it for the sake of each other. Let's look at the next one knowledge. Knowledge and the mysteries of all faiths. You know, what can encourage a community more than growing? We're called to actually grow in the knowledge of Christ. That's why we go and we train at seminaries, right? We train at seminaries because we think that this is important for us to grow in knowledge so we can actually share this knowledge with you. And you can share your knowledge with us. This is not meant to be an individual sport, <laughs> it's really not a sport at all. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, that's my humor. So if you can't laugh at that, you're not going to laugh at anything I say. (laughs) The last of these is this, is to give up everything that we have. You know, no greater love for us is there with each other is to be able to give up everything that we have for the sake of each other. I'm sure you've experienced this before. When someone gave you a gift that you didn't ask for, and maybe a little bit you didn't even want, but because it was out of the abundance of someone's love for you, it was beautiful. You, know, you see this, you know, um, Jesus tells a parable about, about the widow who gave everything that she had. She gave, and it was a penny. She put a penny in the offering plate, but it was greater than the, than the larger sums of gifts that were given by others because she gave all that she had. To be able to give to the point where it actually hurts us. To be able to lay down our lives for each other. This is meant to be a beautiful, encouraging thing to the body. And it can be if we do it out of love. Because through love, our using of our gifts and our actions are transformed and they're amplified. When they're done for the sake of others and the building up of others rather than the building up of ourselves, when we self-sacrificially serve one another, our actions are transformed and amplified by the love of Christ. When they're done in community with love then it's not about being our own accomplishments, but it's actually about being the accomplishment of love working through us and in us. And this happens when we're ordered by love and community because the good life is a community project. We don't grow in our loves alone or on accident, but this is through practicing these habits of love and community. So how do we... How do we grow these habits of love and community? How, what are some ways that we can grow in this kind of love for one another? There's a lot of different ways we can actually answer that question. But I think one way that we can talk about it this morning is this, that, that in our temptation to believe counter-visions of the good life, right, that God is more concerned about our personal accomplishments, that we need to believe, that we need to perform in order to belong. I think one of the most counter- cultural things that we can do to shape us and form us to God's vision of the good life so so that we can be ordered by love and community is this. It's it's the Sabbath. And what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a day of rest. The Sabbath is a day of putting our work down. The Sabbath is a small anti-idolatry campaign So when the world only trusts in what it can accomplish, we trust, our trust isn't in and of ourselves and our own accomplishments, but it's in Christ and what he's already accomplished. And it's a day when we accept our limitations because we, friends, are finite beings. (laughs) We can't work 24-7 as much as we try, as much as we think that that would make us better. More efficient because our goal is not efficiency. When God rested in the garden, He didn't rest because He was tired, but because work is not an end in and of itself. God is teaching us in that rest that there are more important things than getting things done. You know, in the Sabbath, while we put down certain things, when we put down our work, we actually pick up other things. When we practice the habits of love and community as we remember the gospel story and our singing and our scripture reading and our confession and our hearing the great words of grace and as our coming to this table to receive the grace that God has offered for us in Christ. We rest, we play, we enjoy each other, we serve one another, and we stop and we look one another in the eyes. And we let each other know that, listen, you are loved and you are seen. God knows you. He knows the deepest, darkest corners of your hearts, and he loves you. And we stop worrying about our productivity. We're actually focused more on the formation of us as a community, as individuals, as this day of rest pours itself out into the rest of our lives. Because we're laying our doings down. And we're trusting that God is the one who's accomplishing his good works in and through us. I came across this great quote uh, in in a book called Sabbath Keeping. And in it, Lynn Babb says this. She says, The Sabbath helps us know in our experience that nothing we do will make God love us more. The Sabbath helps us know by our experience that nothing we do will make God love us more. This is true. Amen? This is a beautiful truth, and it's one that's really hard for us to understand. Because in the Sabbath, we put down our to-do list and we rest in his promise that his love is enough, that it's real, that it never fails, that acquiring virtue comes before acquiring gifts, that this is the best thing to be unproductive for the sake of our own being. Because when we trust God in the Sabbath, our vision is reoriented. We begin to believe and live out the truth that God is more concerned about who we're becoming than what we're accomplishing. May we rest in this vision, and God's vision of the good life. Pray with me.